Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Even better. Let's start over. Have you ever had a problem where you just really needed to talk to someone? Good thing we don't have visitors, right? I suppose your computer is acting up, so you decide to call the company for some help. Well, first off, good luck talking to a real person. You have to go through a a litany of press four if it's this, or a press five in the pound key if it's that, and then after about ten minutes of them really testing your sanctification, they finally tell you they're going to get you in touch with a customer service representative. You are so relieved. Until you discover your representative is a 12-year-old girl from Malaysia. Now, God bless her, and I know she's doing her best. She's probably just making $3 an hour, but I can't understand about just half of what she says. She sounds like Ricky Ricardo after about two pints of scotch. The point is, I don't understand her, and she probably doesn't understand me either. In fact, she may tell her coworkers, man, that last guy was a real hick. Aren't you glad prayer isn't like that? In prayer, we are assured that Jesus understands and knows. And we can, if we choose to, understand and know him also. That's part of what we'll be looking at this morning. Look at verse 7 with me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, Philip, and you have not known me? Who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Now this has great bearing for us, of course, for if seeing physically is the important thing, then we are all deprived. Not only can we not see God, we cannot even see Jesus, which was at least Philip's privilege. Jesus is simply not physically here, and so we cannot observe him. On the other hand, if perceiving is the true seeing, then we are not deprived at all. For we can perceive Jesus, and in perceiving him, we can know God. And knowing God is life's true purpose. J.I. Packer, in his excellent book, Knowing God, writes this, Knowing about God is crucially important in the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly into London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square, and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself, so we are also cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life with its disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. Disregard the study of God, and you sent yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. Packer finishes by saying, This is the way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Here, Philip makes a request with most Christians people can probably identify. The the request he made was, Lord, show us the Father. It was the request to see God. When Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father and everything will be all right, 
He uses a specific Greek word that literally means give us an appearance. Give us a vision. Show us God like in a miracle. As Philip asks this question, he's probably thinking of those Old Testament examples in which a person or group is said to have actually seen God. Moses was one. He had asked to see God's glory. Then the Lord placed Moses within the cleft of a rock, covered his face with his hand, and passed by. Elijah had a similar experience when the Lord caused a great wind and an earthquake and a fire to pass before his prophet. Though the Lord was not in the wind, the earthquake, or the fire, he was in the still small voice that Elijah heard afterwards. Now, it's the old philosophy, seeing is believing, upon which the world operates today. But Jesus is going to completely invert that. Now, let's all be honest. There are times when each of us would earnestly wish that the experience Philip asked of the Lord would be possible. Now, we know, of course, that God does not possess a tangible form. But there are still times when God seems so remote and so untouchable that we earnestly wish we could actually see him. In such moments, we believe that if we could have this experience, then we should find it easier to live for God in the midst of this world. And we sometimes can even imagine that God is holding out on us, thus making it more difficult for us by denying us this experience. Have you ever had those thoughts? If you have, then the words of Christ to Philip in the upper room should be of great interest to you. But Jesus says, It is strange that you say that, Philip, for I have been with you now for three years. You have seen me throughout that entire period, and yet you still do not really know me. Why then do you think that seeing would help you to know God? Philip, when I cleansed the leper, you saw the Father. When I turned water into wine, you saw the Father. When I cast out demons, you saw the Father. When I speak, you are hearing the Father. Philip, when you see me, you see the Father. Now, it is true enough that they had known him well enough to leave their homes and their friends and their livelihood to follow him wherever he went. But they did not yet know him in his full significance. Because to know him is to know the Father. Until now, all this has been kind of just like preparation. They have not really come to the full knowledge of Jesus and his significance. But from now on, it's going to be different. Jesus' reply is really just a gentle rebuke. Though Jesus had been with them all, in Greek that word you is in the plural form, as in all of them had not really known him. You know, we take a look at a knot sometimes. If you've been trying to get a knot open, and you just tug and tug on it, and it seems to get worse and worse, until you pull at one strand, and somehow that strand is the focus of the entire problem. You're pulling, you're pulling, and suddenly, out of nowhere, you pull one strand, and suddenly all the confusion is gone. All the deadlocks of the knot are all somehow dependent on just that one strand. And when you pull that, the whole thing just opens up to you in the same way. Personal knowledge of God is the strand that will pull open 
all of the real problems in your life. The Bible says that all of our problems stem from this one thing, what? That we are obsessed with too many other things. That is the problem. That is the strand. That is the thing that will open up the logjam. Now, you'd have to say that Philip was on the inside, wouldn't you? He was in the inner circle. He knew Christ. He was devoted to Christ. He was busy in the things of Christ. He was doing all the things that Christ has said. But Christ says right here that it is possible to be that busy in the Christian life you can be that full of knowledge, you can be that full of zeal, and yet still not really know him. Well, that's a pretty remarkable statement this morning. Jesus here is making a distinction between intellectual knowing and personal knowing. You can know about God without knowing him personally. There's a difference between about knowing and personal knowing. A difference between informational knowing and personal knowing. There's a place in Jeremiah 9 where God says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and that he knows me. What the Bible is saying there in Jeremiah is, Imagine you were the brightest person in the world so that every university and every government wanted you to come and work for them. Or imagine you were the greatest athlete in the world. You were like a national treasure. Or imagine you were the sole heir of $5 billion. What kind of life would you have if you were in those situations? What kind of satisfaction? What kind of fulfillment would you experience? What is God saying in Jeremiah? He's saying, all that is nothing compared to the thrill and the satisfaction of knowing me. That's the claim of the Bible, and the Bible dares anybody to try to disprove that. The satisfaction and the fulfillment of knowing God is far greater than the satisfaction of being the wisest, the mightiest, or the richest person in the world. And nobody has ever disproved that. That's the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 10, please. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. The last part of that verse draws attention to the miracles of Christ. Now, as elsewhere in the gospel, faith on the basis of miracles is still better than faith, no faith at all. But where Jesus says, believe me, that, the word that is very significant. In Christianity, it's often stressed that faith is not merely adherence to certain intellectual propositions, but rather it is trust in a living person. And so Jesus resisted the temptation to be a miracle worker, just performing miracles for the amusement of others. In the Gospel of John that we've been studying, the characteristic of the miracles is not that they are wonders, nor that they show mighty powers, but mainly that they are what the Bible calls signs. For those who have eyes to see, they point people to God. 
the miracles here are spoken of as works. That means what for us is a miracle is nothing more for Jesus than just a normal work, like washing dishes or mowing the grass. You ladies are thinking, if my husband never washed the dishes, I would still put that in the miracle category. I thought the ladies would really like that. But the shocking thing is found in verse 12 where we are told that we will do even greater works than Jesus himself. But when we think of that promise, it seems unrealistic, if not just totally impossible. I mean, Jesus had healed the sick, calmed the troubled sea of Galilee, fed thousands with a few loaves of bread and several fish, and he even raised the dead. Now, these were great and mighty works, and we certainly cannot do them. But if that is the case, how could Jesus say what he has said? And the question is, is he even talking about miracles in these verses? Now, I personally don't think so, at least not primarily. Some who take these verses as referring to miracles say the promise is only for those who have great faith in Christ. Consequently, since no one does those works today, we clearly do not believe enough. Our faith is lacking. Now, it's easy to reply to this viewpoint that since if we are to do greater works than Jesus, it would be unnecessary for us, according to this interpretation, to have greater faith than Jesus, which is clearly impossible. Besides, Jesus did not say, anyone who has faith in me with a sufficient degree, or anyone who has faith even with intense faith, no. It is my belief that Jesus is not speaking of greater works as in their power, but greater as in their numbers. And this makes much more sense. What Jesus means we see in the narratives in the book of Acts. And there are a few miracles of healing, but the emphasis of the book of Acts is on the mighty work of conversion. On the day of Pentecost alone, more believers were added to the little band of Jesus' followers than possibly throughout his entire lifetime. When you realize that when Jesus left the scene, committing his gospel to a little group of 11 men in order that they might carry it to the ends of the earth, at that time, the whole world, with the exception of a few of Israel, was lost in the darkness of heathenism. But in just 300 years, Christianity nearly closed all the temples of the pagan Roman Empire and now numbered its converts in the thousands. These were the greater works. And down through the centuries, he still carries on this ministry through us. Here we are helped by the knowledge that God does not look at things the same way that we do, and therefore certainly does not share our, our view of what constitutes greatness. Why, for instance, should the physical miracles be considered great at all? Why should this be the thing that Jesus is referring to? One clue that it is not is found in Luke chapter 10. It's the passage that gives Christ's response to the disciples after they had returned from their first successful preaching mission. They had returned, we are told, with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. In other words, they were thrilled that they were able to cast out demons. But Jesus replied, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy so that nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
Jesus explicitly weighed the value of physical miracles over against the value of having passed out of spiritual death into salvation. And he chose a spiritual miracle as being vastly more important. H.A. Ironside concurs where he says, He was not speaking of miracles. His chief work was not performing miracles, but revealing the Father, bringing knowledge of the Father. It was that of which he was speaking. Next verse, please. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. A Frenchman named Emile Curway flourished in the early part of last century. He claimed to have discovered and developed an almost infallible method of healing. Basically, it was this. When you were sick, if you kept insisting to yourself that you were really getting better, you could quite literally talk yourself out of your illness. You were to repeat a little phrase 20 times in a row on two occasions daily. You were to say this. Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. That reminds me of the little ditty that goes like this. He tackled the thing that couldn't be done, and with determination, he went right to it. He tackled the thing that couldn't be done. He found out he couldn't do it. But sadly, there are some Christians who still believe this kind of thing. As I said earlier, there is a portion of the church who takes this verse and focuses exclusively upon one word, and that is the word believe. They say if we only had enough faith, you would consistently see miracles like this happen all the time. And the fact that you don't is just proof positive that you don't have the right kind of faith. You're therefore living a Satan-defeated life instead of rising above and experiencing the life that God wants for you. So they say you must confess the right things with your mouth, and then you have to speak things into existence. They say because our words are like containers, and if we fill those containers with faith, we can speak whatever we want into existence. So what if you mess up and say, I'll be a monkey's uncle? You suddenly transform into a banana-chewing gorilla? They also tell you don't make any type of negative confession. In other words, don't be a realist. At one church I attended, the evangelist believed this stuff. And he told the story that one morning he went to work and he had a fever and he was coughing and his nose was running. And so his boss told him, he said, man, you're sick. Go on back home. But instead of admitting that he was sick, since that would be a negative confession, he told his boss he wasn't really sick. He just had all the symptoms of being sick. This is what causes people to slowly back away from you and think that Christians are weird. Now, there are various forms of this, such as positive confession, word of faith, and prosperity gospel. You'll hear phrases such as enlarge your vision, raise your level of expectancy, and program your mind for success, and you should speak God's favor over every part of your life. And they're often taking verses out of context when they put this out. Now, there is some value in such exhortations. But what is problematic is when they are taken out of context in such a way to misrepresent what the biblical text is actually saying. Because there are many places in Scripture that do have claims like this. It says in James 1, 
He gives liberally and he begrudges us no good thing. It says in Ephesians 3, he will give you more than you can dare ask or think. James 4 says you do not have because you do not ask. But listen, the problem is not that we are being told to think positively. The problem is that the entire process fundamentally misdirects us toward the realization of our dreams and prosperity as being the most important thing. And that takes away from the glory of God and the accomplishment of his mission. Now that phrase, in my name, is a qualifying statement. In addition to the hope of heaven and an understanding of the nature of the Father, we have been given also the privilege of prayer. We have the privilege of asking in Jesus' name for anything of which we have need. Now you say, well, I have a hard time with that because I've asked for Jesus' name in a lot of things and they haven't came my way. Guys, asking in Jesus' name is not simply attaching the phrase in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer the way a trucker would close his call with 10 for good buddy. No, asking in Jesus' name means asking in harmony with his character and his personality, for his name speaks of his nature. So when some people end their prayers in Jesus' name, they think they have Jesus in a headlock. Now God's got to give me that cherry red Ferrari because I asked for it in Jesus' name. So ha-ha, God, that's check and checkmate. But to ask something in someone's name is to ask it according to their nature. So Jesus is saying, if you ask anything according to my nature, I will do it. That means you are asking for the same types of things that he would ask for. So no, Bill, you can't have a Ferrari because I wouldn't drive a Ferrari. And anyway, within a week, you would have it wrapped around a tree. So whatever is not in your best interest, I reserve the right to deny that request. So if I'm praying, Lord, she's been really mean to me. I ask in your name that fleas infest her armpits. If that's my attitude, I'm not praying in the name of the Lord, no matter how many in Jesus' names I want to attach at the end of it. Is what I'm praying for full of mercy and goodness? Is it in line with the personality of Jesus as revealed in the Gospels? That's what it means to pray in his name. It is so powerful, I want you to know that God had to put a safety catch on it. What do I mean? Well, if you were wise, you found Aladdin's lamp, and the genie popped out and said, I will give you three wishes, anything you want. If you had a modicum of wisdom, you would throw the genie and the lamp right back into the dumpster. Because nobody who has any kind of wisdom, the way that Christianity defines wisdom, would ever want to try to make any wishes like that. Wishes like magic is prayer without a safety catch. Look at little kids, what they want to do. Good parents are always saying, no, you can't eat that rock. No, I won't buy you a flamethrower or a grenade launcher. Well, then what is the purpose of prayer? I see the words, whatever you ask, and my mind immediately goes to that, and I say, well, the purpose of prayer is to get the things you want from God. Prayer is the divine complaint department. Prayer is the divine order catalog. I would like two of these in that size, please. That's what prayer is. It's a way of getting things from God. But is it, though? The key to this whole passage is often missed. 
Notice at the end of verse 13, Jesus said that the purpose of all of this is what? That the Father may be glorified. You know, the moon is really just a small little piece of rock. No reason it's doing well is because it revolves around the center, which is the earth. But what if the moon decided it wanted to have its own center? Next thing you know, there would be a huge collision and a lot of people would die. The point? Some things, if they are built to be oriented around a particular center, and if they get off that particular center, it will lead to disintegration. Now, the Bible says we are all built to center around God. We are built to glorify God. That should be life's overarching purpose. So in a sense, if prayer was like an instrument, you have to set your sights on the glory of the Father or it really won't work. In other words, to glorify something means to make it the center of your universe. To glorify something means to say, as you weigh it against everything else, this is the most heavy and this is the most important. Everything else moves towards it. Everything else is less weighty than it. To glorify something is to center on it. To glorify something is to say, this is the center of my life. And so what is prayer? Prayer is going down to the basement of your heart, turning things off, stopping everything and saying, honestly, what's going on here? It's opening the lid, looking inside and saying, I have to crowd everything in my heart back towards the center. I have to spend my life glorifying the Father. How does that work? Jesus is saying, before you even make your request known, you need to take some time and spend it thinking about the glory of the Father. Let's be real specific about it. You're so unhappy. You're so depressed. You're mad because somebody abused you. You just can't forget it. What do you do? You go into it and you say, if you're like me, Lord, just make me feel better. But that's not the way that prayer really should work. A better way is to get in there and start to glorify God. You start to think about all the things that he has done for you. You think about the fact that it was not beneath him to forgive someone like us for dishonoring him. You think about the fact that you're the one he forgave for dishonoring him. You glorify him. You think about all the things he has done for you. You let the sweetness of what he is and what he's done wash over every part of your life. And what's weird is, next thing you know, you turn around and say, Oh, Lord, let me forgive her. Oh, oh Lord, show me how to bless this one that hurt me. People say prayer changes things. Sometimes. But sometimes God will choose to change us in the midst of those things without ever changing that circumstance. I'll finish by saying this. What does it mean to aim to the glory of God as the first and most important thing in prayer? The purpose of prayer is not to get God to see things our way. The purpose of prayer is for us to get to the point where we see things his way. And there are totally opposite things. You get into the presence of God and you think about his glory. You think about the holiness and the heaviness of the Father. 
You think about the prophethood, priesthood, and kingship of Jesus Christ. And the more you think about that, you start stoking a furnace in your heart. You start turning up the heat. So I exhort us all, don't get into your request. Don't get into what you're asking for until we spend time glorifying him. And if we do that, we can be assured that any prayer that is truly inspired by Jesus and in the name of Christ will be answered. Let us pray. Lord, I don't pray enough. And when I do, I can be selfish. Please change me and my prayers to whatever glorifies you. We thank you for the great privilege that we as mere mortals can speak to the living God. Reveal yourself to us. We can truly ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, I'll ask.